So if you could be turning there in your Bibles, we're going to read just the first six verses of this chapter. Romans chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we join together this morning to worship you. We call to mind who you are and who we are under you. We worship you and bow down before you today. We praise you that you have given us your Son who did not please himself, but instead accomplished everything required for our salvation, giving himself for us. We praise you for Jesus. And we praise you that you have given us your word that speaks truth to us. And we praise you that we get to be together as the body of Christ, to study your word, to sing, worship to you, to pray together, to fellowship with one another, and to see you work in our midst. And we pray that you would do that even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I grew up here in Fallon, most of you know that and my wife is from Canada, and uh, so when we were planning our wedding, and I say we loosely, I didn't have a whole lot to do with that, <laughs> and that worked out just fine. My wife was planning most of our wedding, and I, was, uh, I didn't have many opinions about most things, what color for this, and what kind of flowers for that, and what kind of arrangement. I had no concern. I didn't really care. My main goal, of course, was that we'd be married at the end of it. And that was about the extent of my preparation, right? But there was one item, as maybe a surprising item, that I had an opinion about. And I had a very strong opinion about this particular thing. And I don't know, not every wedding does this. Uh, our wedding did it, and it was a, a normal thing in our circles. But that's the unity candle, the lighting of the unity candle, 
right? So the idea is you've got this one big candle in the middle there, and you've got two separate candles on the side, and the, the two separate candles represent the bride and the groom before they've been joined together, re- represents them individually, right? And then you come and you light the unity candle, signifying, symbolizing that you have become one. Well, so far so good, right? No problem, nothing to debate there. Then the question comes, what do you do with the two candles that represented you individually before you lit the unity candle? Do you blow them out or do you leave them to burn, right? I don't think, you know, most people care. Not that big a deal. And since I didn't care about, you know, so many other things about the way the actual wedding ceremony was going to come off, it might have been a surprise that I had a very strong opinion on this, that it, it was important to me that we blow out the individual candles to symbolize that this is the greater unity, that we have been brought together. And so in my mind, you know, and I was a very mature 21-year-old and uh, had all kinds of deep theological opinions about this and, and things, and, and of course I made the right decision. <laughs> but what we decided to do was blow out the individual candles. Well, uh, we were, I was seeking to symbolize the greater unity that we had together as opposed to when we were apart, that this was what was important, that we were going to join together, we were going to be unified, right? Well, what about, what about as the church? What about as the church? We are joined together, and we are one body. We are one in Christ. We've been made one. We've been given unity and salvation. We've been brought together. We used to be a disparate people, and now we are joined together. But what about those individual candles? What about us individually? Do, do we all just become one in lockstep with one another? No, not yet, right? <laughs> Hasn't happened to this point. You can look around the church. You can look around your own, probably your own Christian family and see that, no, we don't all walk in lockstep with one another. We are still individuals, though we have been joined together. And that's sort of where we are in Romans, talking about that topic, that subject of how we remain individuals with certain things unique to us while also being joined together in the body of Christ and displaying unity. Paul has been talking in in, uh, chapter 14 and now moving into chapter 15. He's been uh, explaining that Christian morality is not simply governed by do this, don't do that. There are many ways, many aspects of our lives that are simply governed that way, but there are aspects There are areas where it's not as simple as give me the rule. Just give me the bottom line. Can I do this? Should I do this? Should I not do this? And he uses, of course, the example of meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And he says, well, in your own practice, there may be distinctions in how you uh, relate to that meat that has been sacrificed to idols, though Ultimately and objectively, Paul will explain his, his position is here and, and elsewhere in Scripture that that meat sacrificed to idols can still be useful to a Christian, that we can still eat that. There is nothing objectively wrong with that meat, though it has been sacrificed to idols, or wine, though it has been sacrificed to idols. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 9, I have the freedom to eat that if I want to. In certain circumstances, I may forego that freedom, but I have that freedom to do that. There is nothing objectively wrong with that thing. Well, he's talking about that area where there is nothing objectively wrong with doing this thing, but people's consciences may have a different opinion 
on the matter. People's own hearts may relate to that thing in a, in a different way than the Christians around them. And so it's not as easy as just saying, you must do this or you may not do that. He's talking about areas of conscience. And when we talk about the body of Christ and areas of conscience, we inevitably come up with differences, not just of opinion. That's not the point. The point is differences in practice, how we practice those things and how we individually relate to that thing, though it in itself may be objectively neutral. And so uh, that brings us into the beginning of chapter 15 where he sort of wraps up the notion of, uh, of how we relate to one another in these areas that he started in chapter 14. And he starts with the notion that we are to focus on our neighbor. We're to focus on our neighbor, which already is instructive to me because I am all too often focused right here with what my freedoms are, with what uh, is good for me, with what I want, with what my opinion is, with what my arguments are. I'm focused right here all too often. But he's going to tell us in these first couple of verses to focus on our neighbor, and particularly when convictions differ, right? He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. There are times when convictions differ within the body of Christ. Now again, doctrinally, objectively, there is nothing wrong with that meat, though it has been sacrificed to idols. There is nothing wrong with that wine, though it has been sacrificed to idols. Objectively, doctrinally speaking, that's not an issue. He's not talking about uh, some people who have different doctrinal opinions on these topics. No, if you push that button, he's going to push back and say, no, we, we, we dare not make those kinds of arguments. We dare not wrap up right and wrong in uh, things like this, matters of uh, conscience, and call that the gospel or gospel truth or as important as the gospel. That's part of why Paul confronted Peter. That's part of the discussion that went on there is you have a muddying, a mixing of the gospel in with these sorts of things. So doctrinally speaking... There's nothing wrong with that meat. Doctrinally speaking, there's nothing wrong with that wine and the consumption of either one in itself. However, because of some people's past involvement, perhaps with idol worship, or if we're talking about the issue of wine, maybe their past involvement with alcohol or something like that, because of people's <clears throat> past involvement, their consciences might not let them enjoy that freedom that they objectively have, that Paul will say, you have freedom to do this. In Christ, we are free to eat that meat, to drink that wine, and yet you, because of your own background, your conscience perhaps might not let you. And in these circumstances, we need to understand a few things. First of all, it's okay for you to abstain and others to partake. That's okay. Second of all, it's okay for you to partake and others to abstain. That's okay. That may happen. Thirdly, it is not okay for you to insist that your standard in this area must be the standard of other people. I can't take my own personal conviction in regard to these things and make that your conviction, make you toe the line to my conscience. 
can't do that. Okay? So that's one thing that we need to understand when convictions differ. But look what he says at the beginning there. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And we've talked about the strong and the weak. The strong are those that Paul would side with. He said, we who are strong, right? That's the position that recognizes we have freedom in these areas. Doctrinally, there is, there is nothing inherently wrong with eating that meat, with drinking that wine. We have that freedom. And Paul would say, I have that freedom, right? But there is another conscience. There is another group of people for whom, yeah, doctrinally I may have that freedom, but in my conscience I don't have that freedom, right? That would be the weaker class. So you have two classes. You have two groups. You have two, two uh, uh, different takes on how we relate to these things. And Paul says, we who are strong, who have that freedom, we need to be prepared to set aside that freedom for the good of our weaker brothers. Because you are your brother's keeper. Remember back in Genesis chapter 4, when uh, Cain and Abel were born, they brought their offerings, and, and uh, Abel's offering was accepted, Cain's offering was not accepted, and Cain, of course, grew angry, and he killed his brother. And the Lord shows up and says, Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel, your brother? And do you remember Cain's response? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Right? He's trying to dodge. He's trying to shirk responsibility there. He lied in the first half when he says, I do not know. Oh, he knew exactly. He could remember very clearly putting him to death. So he lied in the first half, and he dodged in the second half. Am I my brother's keeper? His point, Cain's point was, I'm not my brother's keeper, but he was lying. We are our brother's keeper in this regard. That's the, 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 the gist of the law as it goes forward. When we are told to love our neighbor as ourself, what are we being told? You are your brother's keeper. You are to care for them. You are to look out for their good. You love them as yourself. You take care of your brother, your sister, in the same way that you take care of yourself. We have that kind of concern for one another because you are your brother's keeper. And since that is the case, seek your neighbor's good. Look what he says in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Since we have this relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, since we have this responsibility toward one another, since the strong are to care for the weak, even setting aside their own freedoms in that process, since we have this relationship to care for one another in this way, let us please his neighbor for his good. Let us, each of us, please our neighbor for his good to build him up. When it says please your neighbor, that doesn't, that doesn't just mean do whatever makes your neighbor happy. By the way, the conversation here is about Christian in relationship to Christian. It doesn't just mean do whatever makes your neighbor happy or do whatever your neighbor wants, do whatever, you know, the guy down the pew wants you to do to make them happy. You know, that's not what's going on. He's talking about pleasing them in the sense of doing what is good for them, doing what is best for that other person so that you are loving them as you love yourself. You are seeking to care for them. 
And this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We are our brother's keeper. We do care for one another. We do have a responsibility to our fellow Christians to do good for them, to love them in this way. Love them as we love ourselves. So Paul here is applying, really, the second greatest commandment that uh, Jesus talked about in Matthew 22, and we find all over in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, even willing to forego certain freedoms that you have for the good of the other person. Now, we have the Stevensons here today, and I'm not, I don't intend to call them out, but I may. But I do have a story because uh, their um, oldest daughter was, was in the youth group when I was uh, leading youth group, and, and there came a time when she began to eat gluten-free, which happens, you know, and people have dietary restrictions. Well, the reason she was eating gluten-free was not because she had some personal need to, but because there was a family member who needed to eat, was required to eat gluten-free, and therefore she had decided willingly to set aside that freedom to eat gluten, not just in her presence, not just in her own home, but wherever she went. And so she would eat gluten-free at youth group, and she would eat gluten-free when we would go do things at, uh, in Reno or, or whatever, because she, though she had the freedom, she was happy to give it up for the sake of her sibling. Paul says here that the stronger ought to be willing to give up even our freedom in certain instances for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the point of application here is pretty clear. Seek your neighbor's good, not just your own. Begin to think about your, in your relationships with Christians, begin to think about how you can do good for them, how you can bless them, how you can minister to them with the needs that they have, not just in the ways that it's natural for you to minister, not just in the, in the things that, uh, in the ways that perhaps you would like to be ministered to, but in ways that will bless them and, and contribute to their maturity in Christ, where you can do good for them, where you can bless them, where you can please them for their good. And when we do so, really, we're, we're following Jesus' example because He served others for Christ did not please Himself. He didn't walk around just taking care of His own needs. Aren't we grateful that Jesus didn't just come here to take care of His own needs? By the way, to take care of His own needs, He didn't need to come here. and We would be left in our sins. So we are grateful that Jesus came to take care of not only His own needs. He didn't come just to please Himself. He said in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus' life was spent, was given out, literally poured out in service to other people. And I'm reminded of the way the Gospel of Mark starts in Mark chapter 1. If you remember this day when he, he got up in the morning and he was in Capernaum and he taught in the synagogue. Good way to start the Sabbath. Jesus teaches in the synagogue, right? Well, while he's at the synagogue, there, there's a man who has an unclean spirit. So Jesus casts the demon out from that man. Well, after he leaves the synagogue, he goes to Simon Peter's house. And at Simon Peter's house, Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever. And so she's laid up with a fever. She's deathly ill. And Jesus heals her. 
He gets rid of the fever and restores her to health. Pretty good day so far, right? That's just one day. Well, we're not anywhere near done yet because that evening, the whole city had gathered around the door of the house where he was. They were clamoring at the door. They were seeking for Jesus. They wanted him to continue ministering. They wanted him to continue serving them. And what did Jesus do? He continued serving them. Even even though it was now, the sun was down, it was getting dark, and he's had a long day already. He's been ministering all day, yet he heals people. He casts out demons. He continues to serve the people around him. Probably late into the night. It all started after dark. Well, early the next morning, Jesus gets up. He goes off by himself, probably to the mountains, to the hills somewhere. Goes off by himself to pray, and he starts his day alone with his Father, praying. And while he's doing that, once again, his disciples come and find him. And they say, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. You, you got to come back to town. You got to continue on with the ministry. You got to continue with what you're doing. Well, this is an interesting part here, but what Jesus said was that he, he, he wanted to leave Capernaum. No, we're not going to go back there. We're not going to continue with that. We're going to go somewhere else. Why did he say that? What was he seeking? Was it because he needed a break? Well, he may have needed a break, though I think he found that break in the wee hours of the morning in prayer with his father. But he said, no, we're not going to go back to Capernaum. We're going to go on to the other villages so that I can preach there too. Because that's the reason I came. Jesus' life was committed to this. He was spending his time in service to other people in, in the things that he did day to day, whether it was whether it was in the synagogue or whether it was in the countryside or whether it was healing people or casting out demons or preaching, he was serving other people. His whole life was characterized by doing what was best for other people. And of course, the ultimate service that he rendered was the bearing of our guilt. Healing people was a great thing. Preaching was a great thing. Casting out demons was a great thing. All that Jesus did was great and wonderful. And the thing that we are the most grateful for is that He bore our guilt. As it is written, second half of verse 3, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. You see the logic of that? The reproaches, the guilt of those people who reproached you fell on me. So some people, all people, had reproached the Father been guilty before Him, sinned against Him. And where does their guilt fall? On me, Jesus says. Their guilt falls on me. This is the same as Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, a verse everyone knows, the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. This is the greatest service that He does, that He would take that burden upon Himself. And you and I get to have the blessings of being made right with God because of what Jesus did. That He would take upon Himself the, the reproaches of you and of me. We who have reproached the Father, that guilt has fallen on His Son. Paid in Him. Punished in Him. God has laid on Him the iniquity of us all that our sin would be punished in Christ, that we, by faith in Christ, would have that sin wiped away. But what did Jesus do during His life? As He was pouring out His life before He poured out His life's blood on the cross, 
When he was pouring out his life in service to other people, what was he doing? He was loving the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he was loving his neighbor as himself. He was fulfilling the law. He was being righteous in his life, which is what God requires of you and of me. And by faith in Christ, not only is our sin placed upon Him and punished in Him, but that righteous account is credited to me so that I stand before God righteous because of what He has done. So He bore our guilt. He Himself stood in our place, both in the punishment of our guilt and sin on the cross and in the obedience to God in our place in His life. And so you and I get to have relationship with God. You and I get to have peace with God because of what Christ did, because of the service that Christ rendered on our behalf. And so in all of this, at the very core of what we're looking at today is we're talking about how we relate to one another in areas where we may have disagreement about certain convictions, Certain things where, yeah, I'm free to partake in that. No, I can't partake in that because of my conscience. And those areas that can cause problems and have caused problems in denominations and in churches for years and years could cause problems here. How do we relate to one another? We need to keep in mind that Jesus died not only for me, that He's not only my sacrifice, not only my substitute, but yours that you have peace with God because of what Christ did, that you are my brother in Christ, that you are my sister in Christ, that you are my neighbor, and thus I want to care for you. You are my brother, and I am my brother's keeper. And so we look out for one another. We care for one another in that way, and it changes the way we think about our own freedoms. If my greatest desire on this earth is to see you grow, is to see you grow in your faith, in your walk with Christ, I will make different decisions about how I exercise or don't exercise my own freedoms. If, on the other hand, my focus in this life is what my freedoms are, what I can and can't do, what I want to do, and so I'm going to go through my life exercising my freedoms as much as I want to without regard to you. I am in great danger of damaging many of you along the way. I am missing opportunities to care for my brother and my sister, to love you as I love myself. And so that mind switch is something we need to keep in mind. That's at the heart of the way we tackle these subjects, that we look for way to please our brother, how to do him good. In verse 4 here, he says, having quoted from the Old Testament, from from, uh, Psalm 69, he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. So having just quoted from the Old Testament, and by the way, if you look at the following paragraph, he's going to quote from the Old Testament numerous times again. And really throughout the book of Romans, he's done so time and again. He says, what was written in the Old Testament was written for us, for our benefit. It was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I want to pause here as we 
are talking about this subject and think for just a moment about why we have the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament for? What is its purpose? What are we to glean from the Old Testament? Is it, is it just a collection of examples, life examples? This guy did this and this resulted from it, so be like that guy. Is, is that what the Old Testament is for? Or is it, uh, I, I've, heard, uh, I've heard actually pastors say that primarily the Old Testament is a source for illustrations, for sermons on the New Testament, which I think is a terrible idea. Why do we have the Old Testament? What are we to glean from it? Are these moral stories to tell our children so that our children can grow up with David and Goliath and so they can have this idea of, uh, of conquering uh, the giants in their lives or something like that? Is that why we have the Old Testament? Is, is the Old Testament mainly historical background for the New Testament? The New Testament is where it's at, but really you can't understand the New Testament until you understand the Old Testament, so you need that historical background. Is that why we have that? What are we to take away? Well, I could preach on that and have done so numerous times, but I want to boil it down to just, just a few things that we learn from the Old Testament, that we take away why we have the Old Testament. First of all, it tells us who God is and what He's like. We, we begin to learn from the very first verse who God is and what He is like. So the Old Testament tells us that. It develops in our understanding who is this God and what He's like. And secondly, it develops in our understanding, therefore, what His expectations are of us. Because we are those who are His creatures. He made us. He's our Creator. Therefore, He gets to tell us what to do. He gets to determine for us what is right and wrong because He's the Creator. And so, secondly, we learn from the, the Old Testament what God's expectations are for us. And then we ponder for half a second and we realize, uh-oh, <laughs> Uh-oh, because that's who he is, that's what his expectation is, and I have not measured up. And so thirdly, the Old Testament tells us to look for God's provision of the Savior who will meet God's expectations in the place of people who have not met God's expectations. We look forward to that Savior that he will provide. He will fulfill all of God's promises to his people to redeem them, to protect them, to even form their own character after His character. All of this despite the fact that we ourselves have not measured up to God's standard. And so the Bible tells us who God is and what He's like. It tells us what His expectation is of us, and it gives us the solution, the promise that God Himself will redeem people from that conundrum, from that problem, from our own guilt. And so we begin to look in the Old Testament already for that Savior who's, who's to come, the one who's going to be the deliverer. And in that way, we, in the Old Testament even, find hope and find endurance and find encouragement. If I just go to the Old Testament, if I go to Exodus chapter 20, without reference to the fact that God is going to fulfill those requirements, that He's going to send a Redeemer. If I just go to Exodus chapter 20 and begin to read and begin to apply that to my life, I will wind up in despair. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, as I read through that and I compare that to my life, if I'm going to Exodus 20 to find hope without reference to the Deliverer to come, I will not find hope. I will find despair. I will find the end of myself. I will find that I have broken one through ten. 
But that's not the end of the story. We are to understand we have broken 1 through 10. We have not loved God as we ought to. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are guilty before God. But God has promised to send a Savior, one who would bear our iniquity, one on whom the Father would would lay our guilt so that the reproaches of those who reproached God would fall on Christ. And when we look at the Old Testament that way, we begin to find hope. And so as as an application, as we're uh, finishing up this point, as you read the Old Testament, look for Christ. Look for how it is that God is going to solve this problem that we so often read about in the Old Testament, whether it's in my own personal life or whether it's in the nation of Israel or whether it's in the main character of what's going on or whether it's the guilt of the whole world. Look for how God is going to solve that problem in the person of Jesus, that His expectation of righteousness will be met by the Savior, that the the required punishment for guilt will be given by the Savior so that we can stand in God's presence, rightly related to Him, because of what Christ has done. And in doing so, when we go to the Old Testament looking for, for Christ, we come away with hope because Christ is in the Old Testament. And then thirdly, back to Romans chapter 15, we are to give glory and do so in harmony. First of all, he says in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement, those same words about the Old Testament, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, etc., etc. I want to note, first of all, that there are resources required. He is praying here in a sense. May God grant you this. May God do this. Why is He doing that? It's not just a nice way to say something. He's recognizing we need resources in order to be able to do this. I don't know if you have tried to live in harmony with me, but it requires resources for you to be able to do that. It requires resources. As we die to ourselves daily for the good of the other person, eventually we get tired of that and we say, I tried that, I'm all done. I'm just going to live for me now. That's what my flesh does. That's what your flesh does. And so we need resources. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us, to cause us to continue even tomorrow to die to ourselves for, this, for the sake of our brother or sister in Christ. I did so yesterday and it was a miracle. Today, I don't know if I'm up for it, but the Holy Spirit empowers me to do that so that we can continue. So first of all, we want to take note that there are resources required. This isn't as simple as just making up your mind. Flip a switch, turn over a new leaf, and and live in harmony with one another. Oh, Brennan, I I never thought of that. (laughs) That's so easy. This Christian life thing is just easy, right? Turn over a new leaf. No, we need resources from God to be able to do that. We need His Spirit working in us. Because secondly, this harmony is a gift. It is a gift. He said, may God grant you to live in harmony. Grant means gift. May God grant give it to you. It is a gift from Him. May the God of endurance and encouragement give a gift. Unity is a direct result of God's saving work. When you look at the concept of unity in the New Testament, 
Particularly, I'm thinking of Ephesians chapter 4, and I think we may spend next week looking at Ephesians chapter 4 and the concept of unity that's there. He says we are to maintain... He spends chapter 1, 2, and 3 talking about this salvation, how it is that we come to be in Christ, what it means that we have peace with God. And by the way, different people have peace with God together so that Jew and Gentile alike have been made one in Christ and we together are able to worship Him because of what Christ has done. And so therefore, the beginning of chapter 4, he says, maintain that unity. It already exists because of salvation in Christ. So maintain it. So doctrinally, ultimately, we are one in Christ. We have been made one in Christ by salvation. Now we just need to move forward with that, walk in that, and even that requires the gift of God. So what does that, what does that look like? Well, I, I intend to unpack that next week uh, more from Ephesians, the first half of Ephesians chapter 4 and how we do that. But... At this point, I want to notice that it doesn't mean that all Christians walk in lockstep with one another. It doesn't mean that all Christians look alike, act alike, do exactly the same things, say exactly the same things, hold all the same opinions. That's not what it means. We don't all think the same thoughts. We don't all have the same practices in some areas, as chapter 14 has made clear for us. Even with the differences in whether we are willing to eat that meat or drink that wine that may have been sacrificed to idols, though we have differences, yet we can live in harmony with one another. This harmony is a gift. Well, I, I looked up, I, I literally had to look up some things regarding music because I, I can spell music. That's about the extent of my gifting in that regard. So I, I was thinking about harmony in music, right? Melody and harmony, I'm using words that I hope I'm, I'm going to use correctly. I think I am, but right? The, the, the melody is the part that I remember. That's the part I sing. That's all I've got, okay? If you ask me anything else to sing, I can't do it. Hopefully, I can sing the melody and I can do that, and, and it won't make your ears bleed or anything at all. That's the part, that's the tune that we recognize, right? That's the melody. What's the harmony? Is the harmony exactly the same thing? Well, no, because then it would be the melody. The, the harmony, that, that's, that's other notes that are sung around the melody. The harmony is, that, 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 those are other notes. That sounds different. So if you were to sing the harmony to me, I wouldn't even recognize the song probably. But when you put the two together, what do you get? Something beautiful. And those of you who grew up singing out of the hymnal and singing parts out of the hymnal, you miss that. You miss people around you singing those different parts, and the, the sum total is beautiful. It's gorgeous. And when we sing only the melody, we're missing out. Well, beautiful songs, and we sing, and, and, but I love it when someone around me or someone up here is singing the harmony. It just it fills it out. It makes it beautiful. And he's saying here, not that Christians have to live identically in every detail, regarding meat sacrificed to idols, regarding the wine that's potentially been sacrificed to idols, or any of those things. We don't have to, we're not cookie-cutter copies of one another. But there is a harmony there. There is a, a beautiful peace 
that comes out of it. The, there's a tone, there's a, a beauty to the music, there's a depth, there's a richness that's lacking in a place where you only have the melody. And so, this harmony that we have is a gift from God. We are able to live out our various practices in those areas. And again, don't hear me saying that, that uh, you know, you can do whatever you want in the Christian life and we have freedom to obey or disobey where Jesus said, do this thing or don't do that thing. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm talking about those aspects, those areas where, yeah, there's doctrinal freedom in this regard, but some people have a conscience that won't let them do that. How do we then move forward in that situation? We move forward with a heart bent towards one another, seeking to honor one another, seeking to encourage and build up one another, living in harmony with one another. And the, the sum total, the end result, is a beautiful peace. It's not monochromatic. It's not just one. It's not monotone. There's something more beautiful that has come out of it. And so, what's the application here? We are to seek unity and, and harmony even where we differ with one another. All Christians don't have to think and say and do all the same things. But all that they think and say and do is to be governed by what the Bible teaches. And we are to seek unity and harmony together as we do that. How do we do that? What is it that makes that even possible for us to do that? Well, we do that as we seek to glorify God together. As we're seeking to glorify God together. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's a, there's a lesson here in this whole chapter and a half that we've been talking about. The greatest commandment, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, it is to love the Lord your God with all of your capacity, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with all of your capacity. That's the greatest commandment. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the two greatest commandments, both of them move away from me. Neither one of those greatest commandments said, well, you really need to love yourself right. That's the greatest commandment. Focus on yourself and, and, and your needs and your healing and, and focus on you and everything else will come into place. Well, the greatest commandment is love God with all of your capacity. Honoring Him, seeking to glorify Him. Recognizing who He is and what it is that He has done. To, to redeem people like you, people like me, to reconcile us to holy God. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And so the greatest commandment focuses us that direction, that we give Him glory. And Peter, talking about this topic in 1 Peter chapter 2, says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. And here's a purpose clause. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. This salvation that we have has a purpose, that we may proclaim His excellencies, that we may glorify Him, that we may lift Him up. Christianity is not about me. It's primarily about God and what He has done for us. But I said we seek to glorify God together. So as I'm glorifying God, as I'm loving God with all of my capacity, 
I'm also to be loving my neighbor as myself. I'm also to be looking out for your good. What will grow you in Christ? What will help you honor God? Not just myself, not just my own wounds, not just my own needs, not just my own desires. Looking to please my brother, my sister, for your good. So I think there's a point of application here. Seek to glorify God together. When you come on a Sunday morning, when you come to connect group, when you come to prayer time, when you come to Bible study, Sunday school, whatever it is, when you're joining together with other Christians, keep in mind what they need. I, I so often show up on a Sunday morning, and this sounds terrible for a guy who, you know, stands up and preaches. <laughs> I so often on a Sunday morning, I wake up and I think, you know, what am I going to get out of today? What's, what's today going to do for me? What, what, you know, what, what do I need? What need do I have that, that needs to be met at church? And, and, and so what that, what that turns into, how can I get that need met by you, whether by hook or by crook, right? That, we all have that. And instead, we need to think about when we come on a Sunday morning, how can I bless my brothers and sisters in Christ? How can I do what is good for them? How can I please them for their good? How can I contribute to their sanctification, to their growth, to their knowledge, to their Christian life? How can I help them? How can I bless them? How can I encourage them? The focus is off of me and onto you. And thus, I'm able to serve in that way. And so, we need to make that transition in our own minds when we show up. I need to make that transition in my mind. And and love God with all of my capacity, and then love you as myself so that I'm willing to invest, to give, to serve, to sacrifice, even to give up freedoms, to bless you, to encourage you and one another. Let us seek to glorify God together even in the the ways that we handle differences in debatable areas, seeking to do good for the other. I started off the message today talking about uh, the decision that, that we had made and that I had a very strong opinion about the, the unity candle and blowing out the candles and all that kind of stuff. And being at church is a lot like being in a marriage as far as commitment to one another, as far as the fact that you are joined together with other people who, turns out, have their own mind. <laughs> you know, this might be a surprise to people who aren't married yet, but your spouse will have his own mind her own mind, and you have to learn to live in that way. But in church, as in marriage, there is room for certain different practices in in these non-essential areas. Different people come to different conclusions about how they're going to behave, how they're going to live out their lives in regard to meat sacrifice to idols, for example. The way we behave toward one another in those differences is very important. We don't just admit Yeah, we have differences of opinion and then run roughshod over one another. The stronger need not to look down upon or run over or bully the scruples of the weak. And they certainly need to be careful not to do something with their freedoms that would cause the weaker brother to fall into sin in this area. Let's look out for one another. Likewise, the weaker needs not to judge the stronger nor to demand that the stronger do away with his liberties just because of some people's consciences. Let's behave towards one another in harmony. 
in unity. We can hold different practical convictions in these areas and we can still maintain these harmonious relationships with one another. And as both groups seek to glorify God with their actions and with their behavior toward the other group, with their attitudes toward the other group, there arises a a rich harmony that's beautiful to listen to. It's it's a little bit confusing to the world because not every Christian looks like every other Christian. Not even every obedient Christian looks like every other obedient Christian. And it's a little bit startling to the legalist also to see that, well, we don't have one set of guidelines that everybody must follow. Every obedient Christian follows these same guidelines in these, some of these areas. When we are loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind and strength, when we are seeking to love our neighbor as ourself, even though we may come to differing conclusions about how we're going to practice in some of these areas, there's a beautiful harmony as we seek to bless and not curse one another, as we seek to contribute to the spiritual growth of our brothers and sisters in Christ, really as we seek to point one another to Christ Himself, remembering that the Christian life is not about a list of do's and don'ts, but it's about the salvation that is ours in Christ. Because He who was promised in the Old Testament, God was faithful to send Him. And He really was obedient in our place. And He really did die that sacrificial death in our place. That that we, by faith in Christ, would have that righteousness credited to us. And so we have peace with God. And so let's live from that peace and let's show that peace to one another, experiencing that even together as a church. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful that you have sent your Son to redeem me. And not just me by myself on my own somewhere, but to redeem these, my brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And they're different than me. Father, I pray that you would help me and help us learn how to live in harmony with one another. Though we don't agree in some of these areas, yet we can move forward. We can honor you and we can honor one another. We can glorify God in our lives and in our church. Father, I thank you for the numerous times when my brothers and sisters in Christ have shown me grace, have been merciful to me, have, have given up even their own freedoms out of consideration for me, thinking of my good ahead of their own. Father, I pray that you would help us to do that for one another more and more, that, that this, the body of Christ, would, would become more and more like a family where we sacrifice and care for one another, where we direct one another to Jesus which is the ultimate good. Father, we honor you and we are grateful and we praise you today and pray that you would bless us with that harmony with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. If you want to pray with a family, there will be someone up here to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.